Good morning. We uh, continue our trip through the Sermon on the Mount. And just a few reminders about the Sermon on the Mount. When we first start reading this, it almost seems like a conflict in, in Jesus' teaching where he told us that he came to this earth to lighten our burdens, not to make it more difficult. And then he preaches the sermon with a whole bunch of complex things that we now, and difficult and impossible things as sinners to, do, to perform. And it almost appears to be a conflict with these teachings. But it is not. We have to remember two things. Number one, Jesus the Savior. Jesus came to this earth for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to save us. Salvation is assured. That stuff has been done. It's been done for you. There's nothing you can do about it because of our, our nature is to continue doing the things that we don't want to do. The conflict that we deal with, with with sin. And then there's Jesus, the teacher. And Jesus, the teacher, says, okay, I've given you salvation, but there is need for growth. What's the purpose of salvation when there is no growth in your life? And what's the purpose of growth? To improve your life? to be servants of his, to be disciples. And we have to remember that. The Sermon of the Mount is about discipleship. Jesus teaching us how to be disciples. For us to do those things that seem almost impossible for us to do. It's how do I deal with pride? How do I deal with, with hating my enemies? And you've, you've heard all these, these teachings as we've gone through the weeks. And today we come to another one, and it's really about fasting, but it's not, there's a bigger picture. But let's read our text for today. Our text for today comes from Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put on oil on your head and wash your face, so that you will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Little background to this. So, what is it? What is it? Why is he talking about this washing your face and, and put oil on your head? So, the traditions of the Old Testament was that when you when you fasted, there was a reason for it, and that is to to um, to reconcile yourself back to God, to recognize your weaknesses, and to humble yourself before God. And so. In their typical ways, they also piled on a bunch of criteria when you did that. 
And so you, when you did this for a week or so, you had to abstain from certain things. So you had to abstain from bathing. You had to abstain from any, uh, any anointing, whether that anointing, when they use the word anointing, it is for religious reasons as well as for uh, cosmetic reasons, some perfume that you throw on yourself, so you had to abstain from that. Uh, no sexual activity during this time period that you had to, it was a time of, of withdrawing yourself and, and, and drawing closer to God. And as all good religious people, some people discovered that they could get some attention by not bathing. And their faces used to be, and oh, the other thing that you had to do was actually cover your face so that you could, you disguised yourself and you often wore a veil during this time so that people didn't see who you were, so that you were anonymous in your, in your fasting. Well, <clears throat> the problem with that is that people couldn't see who you were and there was no uh, elevation of your status in society when people couldn't see your face. And so what they did was they started taking ash and rubbed ash all over their faces and as a type of disguise. And in fact, in the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament, there's a guy by the name of Asher. And the meaning of that word in the Hebrew means blackened face. And the, the, the legend according to, to uh, Jewish teaching is this guy, Asher, used to put so much ash on, he fasted so much that he put so much ash on his face that he was perpetually black in his face. Totally drawing attention to himself. The irony of this is so incredible, as Jesus talks about. The hypocrisy of this. And, and there's several ironies about this. The first is that, and you probably know this, the more you try to impress people, the less you impress them. And I'm sure you've seen that in your, well, maybe not in your lives, but you've seen in other people's lives, because you are humble people. And secondly, this was a time of humiliation a time of setting ourselves aside, breaking away from worldly things, worldly thinking, and putting ourselves in a state of worship. And yet, all these people were doing was drawing attention to themselves. An absolute lack of humility. And this is really the bigger, the bigger picture, the bigger question about this whole teaching. It's about humility. There's basically two types of humility. Our humility to God and our humility to, to our fellow men. And they really behave in different ways. And a lot of our teaching is going to be concentrated on our humility with fellow men but I would like to say something about humility to God. When we humble ourselves before God, we recognize his sovereignty, 
His power, His godliness, His righteousness, the supreme being, the ruler of the universe. And we are humble, broken people who attempt to worship Him. And so, when we humble ourselves before God, we are not on the par with God. We are below God, and we worship Him as a supreme being. The only being that we should worship in that way he is the only being that is superior to us. Maybe angels are as well. I'm not going to debate that, but we can discuss that. But really, God is the sovereign God, the God to be worshipped, and the person or being that we need to humble ourselves before. Then is our humility with fellow man, and this is where confusion occurs. So what is humility? <clears throat> and I'm going to offer three definitions over here because often when we think about humility, it's often about what you don't do. It's more almost phrased in a, in a negative context of, of our behaviors. And our, the first definition of humility is uh, give up certain self-aggrandizing thought patterns reflexes, and behaviors. So we're going to break that down. It sounds like a lot of big words. So I think you know what a, a, a grandizing means. A grandizing is putting yourself above everybody else. Look how great I am. <laughs> big, big guy. So that's, that's a fairly simple one. Thought patterns, usually comparing ourselves to others in our minds. So immediately, there's a thought pattern when, when, when you see there's a stimulation that occurs. There's something that occurs in your mind. And either you're going you're gonna to react to that in certain ways automatically. And that one of those is to either elevate yourself or put yourself down or be neutral. Reflexes. I think you know what it is, involuntary and nearly in instantaneous response to your stimulus. And behaviors, giving up certain self-aggrandizing uh, thought patterns, <coughs> reflexes, and behaviors. So what do we mean by the behaviors? Remember, we're talking about humiliation here. It's my response to people in a physical way when they say or do something. Either I can smile at them, I can smirk at them, I can reward them with an acknowledgement or down them with a non-acknowledgement. That's our first definition. Definition number two. <clears throat> And these will come together. <clears throat> a sense of emotional autonomy. So once again, what do we mean by emotional autonomy? And we have a definition for that. The ability, the ability to have significant control over one's life. 
to be able to make decisions and to relinquish the interpersonal dependency on others. A lot of words, it's quite simple. We don't need other people to make decisions. We are autonomous. We are self-confident. We feel and make decisions without having the support of anybody else. Like going to a restaurant. What are you going to have? And people don't want to make up their minds as to what they're going to have until you make up your mind as to what you're going to have. You cannot make your decision on your own. I mean, this happens in life all the time. Self-autonomous. Making decisions on your own. Not needing the support or assurance from other people that you are making the right decisions. You know in your own mind that you are making your right decisions. This is not arrogance. This is self-assurance. This is self-confidence. Knowing that you can do this on your own. And this is a growth thing. Most kids deal with this. They want, to, they want to make decisions, but they want acknowledgement about their decisions. Unfortunately, for some of us, we never get out of that growth. We always want the acknowledgement from somebody else as to the, the decisions that we are making. You know who you are. I'm not, this is not a judgment, by the way. I'm not judging anybody. I'm just stating the facts. Definition number, th number three. And this is the tough one. Freedom from the control of competitive reflex. So what is competitive reflex? The pre-conscious, visceral uh, impulse to oppose or outdo others. Or to auto-react against perceived threats to one's established, established sense of self. So when something or someone says something or opposes you, there's an immediate competitive reflex. And for those people who are competitive, you know what I'm talking about. And sometimes, Ashley, why are you looking at me like that? And sometimes those reflexes are so powerful and we are prepared even to annoy people with our reflexes, to be competitive, to outdo them, to be better than them, to show them that they're not as good as what I am. I'm actually better than you. This competitive reflex. So what are the characteristics of, of humility? I've, I've just been through some definitions. <clears throat> Humility is about emotional neutrality. It doesn't, neutrality doesn't mean that you're indifferent, that you're neutral, you can make decisions on your own. It involves an experience of growth in which, no, that in which you no longer need to depend on others above. Oh, sorry, let me read that again. It involves an experience of growth in which you no longer need to put yourself above others, but, put, but don't put yourself below them either. So there is no need for you to put above yourself above other somebody else, and no need for you to put yourself below somebody else. That's self-deprecation. 
And self-deprecation is not humility. We'll talk about that a little later. Number two, everyone is your peer. Every human being is your peer, from the most important person to the least. You're just as valuable as every other human being on the planet. No more, no less. Let me say that again. You are no more valuable than any other person on this planet, and you are no more or no less valuable as them. You're of equal value to everybody else on this planet. No one is above anybody else. No prince or king, president, prime minister, peasant, servant. We are all peers. Number three. It's about behaving and reacting from purpose, not Emotions. How often do we react? Do we react to, to situations with our emotions? Our emotions move first before sitting down and thinking, or just taking a moment to think about our re- reactions. You learn to simply disconnect or deprogram the competitive reflex in situations where it's not productive. And it is not self-deprecation. Let me give you an example of that. So you go to a restaurant and they make this incredible pie. And you say to yourself, I'm going to replicate this pie at home. And you replicate this pie at home. And you serve it to some friends. And you don't taste it. Your friends say to you, man, that was delicious. That pie was really good. You can react, and if it was good, you can react in two different ways. The self-deprecating person would say, Man, I tasted this pie in such and such a restaurant, and I just made a total mess of it. It does not taste as good as what there is. It is horrible. I am sorry that I even gave it to you. That's self-deprecation. That is not humility. A humble person would say, thank you for that compliment. I appreciate it. I tasted this pie at a restaurant. I really enjoyed it. And mine is not quite as good as them, but I hope to improve on it. Total different reaction to the same situation. Here's a quote from psychiatrist and uh, psychotherapist uh, Fritz Pearl. I am I... And you are you. I am not in this world to live up to your expectations. And you are not in this world to live up to mine. How do we struggle with this one? 
especially with our children. So here's a competitive reflex example, and I said I would come back to this. A friend has just remodeled their home, and they are pleased and pr proud of the results. <clears throat> she invited you to come and have a look. The premise of the situation, whether you recognize it or not, is for her to show off her house, for you to appreciate it and, and to praise her for it, and her to let her feel good about it. So what do you do? Yes, some questions. <clears throat> do you feel an impulse to tell her how she should have done it better? Do you explain things to her, signaling that you know more about these things than what she does? Do you straighten that picture that is slightly askew? Do you discourse on how it would discourse on how you did it better in your own home? Tell her how to do things better. Do you tell her about your similar accomplishments? Or do you support her in a moment of triumph, satisfaction, and self-congratulation? Uh, I think we all struggle with this. Especially if we classify ourselves expert in whatever field it is. We are so reluctant to reward people for what they have done, especially when we know they could have done it better. But it's not for us to decide if they could have done it better or not. We need to rejoice and celebrate with them in their moment of triumph. That is true humility. Not bringing my story into their story excluding myself from the picture, being they, making them the total concentration of the moment. So here are some self-diagnostic questions. Do you offer unsolicited advice to others on how to live their lives better? Parents? with adult children? <laughs> Do you half-heartedly praise somebody when they share their new ideas or discovery about life? Well, that's great. That's wonderful. How often do we squelch people by just the way we say things? People's emotions? Too often, that's right. Exactly. If someone tells a joke, do you feel compelled to top it with your one, better one? Or, even worse, do you hold back on laughing so the joke falls flat? Do 
Do you always have a better story, a better example, a better suggestion, or a better solution? How often can you listen to a story and not insert your story into that story? How often can you not hijack a story? That's true humility. I am not important when I listen to your story. I want to hear your story, and I want to hear your story to completion. That's humility. Do you feel compelled to demonstrate how smart you are or how much you know? So here's the bottom line. And this is where this, the whole concept of humility combines with this concept of discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus. Are you willing to wound others by attempting to elevate yourself above them? Or are you prepared to deal with them as equals and to celebrate with them on their moments of accomplishment? As a disciple of Jesus, what should be your behavior? Humility is for us and it is for others. Why for us? It is liberating. You no longer feel that you need to compete with anybody else. You don't feel the need to elevate yourself. You don't need to feel, need to feel less than anybody else. There's no need for self-deprecation. There's no need to be any different from somebody else. You can listen to other people, be equals, and not compete with them. And for others, quote from psychiatrist William James, <clears throat> the deepest craving in all human beings is a desire to be appreciated. The, de the deepest craving of all human beings is a desire to be appreciated. This week, uh, we had lunch on several occasions with, with old acquaintances, and we were just catching up. And uh, they... Um, None, well, one of them actually belonged to a different religion. They weren't Christian. They were some other uh, religion. They weren't even a different denomination. And others didn't even attend church, had never attended church in their lives. And I, I, was, I was deeply offended because one of them was a pretty good friend of ours, and, he, and we were talking about retirement. And he gave me a little lecture on, on uh, purpose. <laughs> he said, so what is your purpose in life? Are you going to continue having purpose in life? And I thought, who are you to tell me that? But it's a valid question. But he also said, we were talking about his kids, and we were also talking about 
communicating in, in the modern world, and we were saying, are your, are your kids dating? And he said, no, and he said, the world has changed. He said, kids don't, and probably you know this, kids, kids don't hang out together like we used to. Most communication is done through electronically, texting and things like this. And socializing on a face-to-face -face basis has, has disappeared. And it got me thinking about how we live in this postmodern world where so much has changed in, in our lifetimes. And, and I think in the last 20 years or 30 years, things have changed so much more quickly. I mean, there's been this absolute dramatic change in the way that we, we live our lives. I mean, electronic communication has become dominant and we just don't do things the way we used to. And I think there's a detrimental effect of that. And I think we will see that in the future. And I think we, we are beginning to see that. But it did get me thinking. Those three bottom words in our mission statement, to belong, grow, and serve. We belong so that we can grow, so that we can serve. And I thought to myself, and I thought it on, my, on a personal basis, and then I thought about it on campus basis, and then I thought about it as the church as a whole. When I, when I use the word church, I'm using the word church in the universal Catholic thinking in that the church of God is God's followers in total. It's not a denomination. How are we responding to the modern world? And even more importantly, what do we have to offer to make these people's lives different, to improve their lives? Or do we have anything to offer? And if we don't have anything to offer, what is it? And I can tell you this, it's not about doctrine. It's not believing certain ways or certain things. It's not coming to a certain, certain place. It's not worshiping in a certain manner. It's about relationships. And I truly believe this. It's about relationships. And there's truly only one thing that we can offer this world. And I really believe this. And this is to provide a place for them where they can be heard. A place where people are safe. A place where they can tell their stories uninterrupted. A place where people will be concerned about their stories. A place that people not react negatively towards their ill behavior. And I think that's a huge challenge that we have to face up to. Not only as campus or the church, but as an individual. How accepting are we? How good are we at listening? How good are we 
at treating every single person as a peer. Not elevating ourselves above or not lowering ourselves below. It's one of the things that we can do in this world. And it's my challenge for you. Make this world a little different, a little better for somebody else. And maybe that is your purpose in life. <laughs>